Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we'll continue our series on the Eureka Rebellion. This episode is really the rest of episode 30. It just became too big to put into one single recording, so I sort of cut it in half, really. So we're going to launch straight into it, because this follows straight on from that earlier one. Previously, we were looking at the arrangement that La Trobe had set up to manage the Victorian gold rush. The developing objections, once the very easy gold started to run out, and we began looking in particular at the Ballarat gold field. We noted that there seemed to be quite an unfortunate group of administrators and police there, which were really agitating the diggers in the area. The corruption there was becoming pretty obvious, and in this episode we'll continue on looking at how this escalated into a real distrust and disgust for the authorities. The seeds were being sown here for a move to rebellion at the Eureka Stockade. If you are new to the Australian Histories podcast, but interested in this Eureka story, I would suggest that you listen first to episode 29, Eureka Part 1, Gold, which gives you a brief background to the gold rushes starting in Australia and the way the authorities tried to manage that rush. And then listen to 30, which gives you a taste of the deterioration of relations on the Ballarat goldfield. I'm also going to apologise if I'm just a bit snuffly for this recording. I'm really quite keen to get this recording out as quickly as possible, so I'm just going to push through this little snuffle that I have at the moment and... um, Hopefully by next month, all should be well again. Okay, so we're going to launch straight into the content of episode 31 and talk about the formation of the Ballarat Reform League. We left the previous episode, number 30, talking about a few incidents which illustrated the corruption and poor behaviour that the diggers had had to put up with at Ballarat. While miners all over the country continued to call for reform on the licence arrangements and sometimes other grievances, relations would continue to deteriorate on the Ballarat goldfields in particular, and so we'll now turn our attention to that escalation, because we know that ended up in December of 1854 in a shocking and lethal confrontation. Meetings had been going on all over the goldfields ad infinitum. Men were complaining and making petitions, sending delegations and demanding change, and threatening to withhold license fee payments and so on and so on. But there were other things to be unhappy about too, and the discontent being stoked at Ballarat just made more radical demands now seem more acceptable to many. Speakers at meetings now more often talked about reforms of the kind that the British Chartists were demanding in the previous decade or so. The Chartists had called for political change in Britain that would bring a vote for every free man over 21, secret ballot elections, no property qualifications restricting who could become members of Parliament, a wage for parliamentarians allowing poor men to stand for office, and equal constituencies so that every man's vote would be of equal value. Still, bad luck for the women, though. Women were still pretty invisible in this movement, a movement which championed equality. Can we call that ironic? (laughs) They also requested annual terms, with members having to run for election again each year. 
largely a working-class movement, we can imagine just how terrifying the establishment found it. And while the Chartists operated largely within the system, filing petitions and bringing their requests to Parliament, there were more radical elements, as there might be in any group, who thought that more direct action may be needed. Indeed, there were workers' strikes and riots resulting from a lack of progress of their cause, and many arrests were made, including charges of treason, such was the fear of change in the establishment, and some of their leaders were sent as convicts to Australia for their trouble. While Chartism itself wasn't initially on the agenda for many at Ballarat, and politics not their most immediate issue, over time the diggers felt a growing frustration with the status quo. They were being taxed, quite heavily actually, and yet they had no representation in Parliament, and certainly very little in the way of citizens' services for their money. Though, to be fair, Latrobe had called in a surveyor on December of 1851 to mark out a town grid and a services plan for Ballarat, the first planned Goldfields town. As the town prospered and grew over the years, many of the magnificent buildings that we can still see there today began to be built along that street grid. There's a wonderful podcast called Age of Victoria, produced in the UK, which focuses on a wide range of topics that are relevant to the Victorian era. The calls for reform in England had been going on a long time before the Chartists were labelled, and the Peterloo massacre that took place in Manchester in 1819, on which there is an episode, also illustrates the savage repression applied when the working classes had the nerve to request their fair share in England. A bit more than 30 years later, Australia was about to get its own small taste of a government, bringing in the military to crush the people's protest. The miners had all this time been using the mechanisms available to them, approaching the officials with requests and passing resolutions for action and petitioning the parliament, but all to no avail. The government watched and even began to fear them, but they did not sit down and talk in good faith and agree to consider their requests, rarely even offering to move them up the chain of command. And there were other issues commonly raised at these meetings, particularly the perpetual cry to unlock the land. The squatters who monopolised vast runs resisted every move to reallocate the lands that they were occupying for the common man to purchase. Diggers and other working men had little option to take up land, put down roots and farm for themselves. This resulted in no choice but to keep digging or to yield to a life working for others. So there was plenty of injustice to fire up the attendees at these meetings, and Ballarat was about to get one more ignition source for these existing fuses. There was a feeling amongst the authorities that the majority of trouble was being stirred up by foreign agitators. The Europeans, the Americans, and, most troublesome and irritating of all, the Irish. And certainly there was some truth in that. Lots of the big names that would come out of the smoke of the Eureka stockade would be foreigners. Italian Raffaello Carboni, German Frederick Verne, American James McGill, or suspect British like Welshman John Humphrey or Irishmen Peter Laylor and Timothy Hayes. But then pretty much every white man in the country had recently come from somewhere else and there was a good number of English Australians strong in their support of a more radical political program. Though it must also be said that there were a good number of diggers who wanted action on the licence fees and the outrageous policing on the goldfields but who had no interest in any other political aims being promoted 
particularly if it seemed like disrespect to the Queen and country. Still, why the government thought they could ignore responding to the discontent because it might be led by foreigners doesn't make any sense. Either way, no other action was contemplated by the authorities except further show of force. If you recall from last episode, I uh, recounted a story about Father Smythe's assistant, Johannes, being arrested on the goldfields when he had every right to be there. A few days before that incident took place, another incident occurred that drew in a number of the people who would become active in the Ballarat Reform League. Such was the outrage that followed. We might even see this as the final straw for the diggers that would lead the men down the path to rebellion. A miner named Scobie, friend and tent neighbour of Peter Laylor, was murdered near the Eureka Hotel, which was owned by James Bentley. Not to fan the flames of prejudice too much, but Bentley was an expired Vandemonian convict, albeit in the clothing of a prosperous man who'd made a truckload of money as a confectioner and then a gold buyer in Melbourne. Taking his funds and seeing the potential in a hotel at the goldfields, he and his business partner Farrell, also an ex-convict from Tasmania, settled on Ballarat to construct their new hotel. Farrell had risen up to become a police magistrate at nearby Castlemaine. And don't you find that amazing? A convicted criminal of such consequence that he was exiled as a convict halfway around the world. But when he served his sentence he rises to become a judiciary officer serving the government, a job one assumes which requires a level of respect for the law, honesty and integrity. But perhaps simply acting like one is a fine, upstanding member of the community is enough at this time, because actually he seems to have then gone on to earn a good living from bribes he extracted from the many sly grog operators across the goldfields there so not quite the behaviour we might want from a good government officer. Bentley appears to have had a number of other well-connected, influential and malleable cronies like that, that were able to assist him in setting up his business in Ballarat, such as the police magistrate there, John Dews, who seemed to be running his court much like Farrell's. Dews was likely to have actually been a paid-up silent partner in the hotel venture too, signing off on all the permissions and licences that Bentley required. And so, the £30,000 fabulously appointed Eureka Hotel, capable of sleeping 80 people and serving food and alcohol to many more, was built and opened on July 12, 1854. With friends like Bentley had, there was not much concern about rigorously enforcing lawful closing hours, and it was well known that it might be possible to get a drink there quite late into the night. Certainly, it was the establishment of choice for the police, magistrates and other authorities of the area, but the back bars, away from the refined areas of the hotel, where the diggers could drink if they dared, were so well known for bad behaviour and assaults that it was known in the mining community as the slaughterhouse. On October 7th, James Scobie and his friend were returning to camp after a heavy night on the turps, and they decided to try their luck for one last drink at the Eureka Hotel as they passed by. But the doors were shut, and Bentley was not keen to oblige, and, as will happen in his line of business, the drunks took the news badly, and an aggressive argument took place. It is sometimes reported that Scobie may have broken a window of the hotel, or insulted the reputation of Bentley's wife but one way or another he certainly riled Bentley into action, 
and both Scobie and his friend were chased off and beaten with a shovel. The friend was able to scramble up and stumble off towards their tent, but when he noticed that Scobie was not with him, he returned to find him felled there, dead or dying. Many witnesses nearby heard the altercation, including some who worked at the Eureka Hotel, some of whom witnessed Bentley, Mrs Bentley, Farrell, and possibly some other employees as well, heading out in pursuit of Scobie and his friend, and then hearing one of them give the men, quote, a clip with the shovel, unquote. After finding poor Scobie in that state, his friend roused the doctor to him, and needing light to assess his wounds, the doctor took him into the hotel, where they attempted to revive him, though to no avail. The following afternoon, twelve men were sworn in to hold an inquest, the outcome of which was that Scobie met his death, quote, by a blow, but by whom it was given is at present unknown, unquote. But to many present at the inquest, both the procedure itself and the outcome were highly unsatisfactory. Scobie's friend, Peter Laylor, attended, and he noted that the coroner had, quote, tried to smother the case, unquote. Bentley, having already claimed that he had not at any time left the hotel that night, and indeed knew nothing of Scobie until the doctor brought his body into the hotel, he had been allowed to cross-examine witnesses, including those whose shovel had been picked up outside their tent and used to beat Scobie, and who had heard Bentley there at the time. So it looked like, and was, a cover-up. Many felt that Bentley had been the one to swing the shovel, and that evidence incriminating him was ignored. He was being protected from the expected gaze of the law by his friends. Knowing that the diggers were already agitated and upset by the now frequent license hunts, uh, if you remember from last episode, Hotham had increased them to twice a week. The Gold Commissioner Reed wisely reported to his superiors that this violent incident was likely to further inflame ill-feeling towards the commissioners and police, and he would be right in this assessment. So on the 9th, a judicial inquiry was ordered, and the Bentleys and Farrell were arrested for Scobie's murder. Although spies from the commissioners were regularly attending miners' meetings and reporting back, also on the 9th, Hotham ordered that all political meetings at Ballarat should be attended by a magistrate and a shorthand writer to record all, quote, noting any seditious or inflammatory language if made use of, or any attempt to incite persons to a breach of the peace, or any other infraction of the law, unquote. So we can see that the authorities fully understood just how serious things had gotten at Ballarat, I know we have the benefit of hindsight, but they also saw this train wreck coming and had only one reaction to it. Hold the line, keep policing as normal, and ignore the outcry. Governments that fail to respond to their constituents and to changing situations? Oh, well, it's not just a historical problem, is it? The Ballarat Times soon wrote, quote, it is not fines, imprisonment, taxation and bayonets that is required to keep the people tranquil and content. It is attention to their wants and their just rights alone that will make the miners content. Unquote. On the 12th, the Scobie inquiry took place, but the magistrate was John Dews, and he released the Bentleys and Farrell stating a lack of evidence. Once again, by failing to ensure an impartial assessment, they had missed an opportunity to placate the reasonable concerns of the diggers. 
Dew's association with Bentley and the Eureka Hotel was by then a very well-known rumour. The sense of compounding corruption in this case continued, and the inevitable backlash began to kick off. On the 17th, a public meeting was called near where Scobie was murdered, and about 5,000 men gathered to protest the highly suspect acquittal and to demand a more thorough and impartial investigation. The organising committee there included one Peter Laylor as secretary. As the crowd milled and grew, the troopers tried to ride through the throng and break up the crowd. But this only served to further darken the mood, and the crowd now became very agitated, Carboni suggesting that that police action was to directly incite the burning of the hotel. The police who attended were then pelted with eggs, <laughs> and I think that shows some modicum of restraint, given the mood. But they were unable to disperse the angry crowd, then approaching the Eureka Hotel. Someone then threw a stone at the building, breaking glass, and soon a barrage of projectiles was being hurled at the building, as Bentley dashed away to the safety of the police camp. The mob began demolishing its fittings and fixtures, and soon the building was alight. When completely razed to the ground, many, no doubt, would have felt that Bentley had finally got his rough justice comeuppance. Afterwards, the police back at the camp became concerned that the riled diggers might soon come for Bentley, and so they armed all the troopers and moved the women and children out of the compound for their safety, and they dispatched a messenger to Melbourne requesting reinforcements. But they had panicked, no attack materialised, the crowd having been satisfied with the destruction of the hotel. Hotham, however, did send reinforcements over the next few days, and he authorised the commanders there to Quote, use force whenever legally called upon to do so without regard to the consequences which might ensue. Unquote. Without regard. Again, we have a clear point here where another road might have been taken. What a pity he didn't send a cool headed delegation to sit down with the likes of John Humphrey, Father Smythe, or any number of men who had sent respectful letters, petitions and delegations in the past to try and negotiate a resolution over the problems at Ballarat, and who might have been able to turn around the mood on the goldfields if they could just report to the men some government interest in their issues, some progress on reform and some action on the corruption. Locally, Magistrate Hughes distributed notices calling on, quote, all loyal and respectable inhabitants of the goldfields to come immediately forward and be sworn in as special constables, unquote, to help address their insecurities at the camp. A report by Reed, the commissioner, had stated that there were currently 16,500 men on the goldfields in Ballarat, and close to that number again, women and children. And yet only three men responded to the call, and none of those were diggers. The authorities were just not feeling the love. Predictably, though, by October 21st, the Goldfields police began arresting men they could identify from the Eureka Hotel riot crowd and charged them, with no bail granted. But word got around fast, and 7,000 men gathered at the police camp to demand their release. Carboni wrote, quote, I think the diggers at this time seriously contemplated to burn down the camp and thus get rid in a blaze of all their grievances, unquote. 
but they were able to contain this ferment, and instead a delegation was sent in to the commissioner to calmly discuss the matter. Fortunately, new magistrates had been brought in, and though they resented the diggers for failing to show, quote, proper respect to authority, unquote, they did bail the arrested men, though with rather hefty sureties, and the immediate situation there was diffused. The diggers carried the men away, and in their joy, a number in the crowd celebrated by firing substantial shots into the air. Joy, possibly, but also a defiant show of bravado, I imagine, letting the camp know the diggers were armed and should perhaps be treated with more respect in return. Some in that crowd would attend another monster meeting the following day to discuss the poor response from the authorities to date regarding the affront that Johannes and Father Smythe had been subject to. Also around the 21st, two of the recently unemployed workers from the Eureka Hotel perhaps prompted by the rewards for information, came forward with an offer to give evidence against Bentley. And so the Bentleys and Farrell were re-arrested, and the diggers again wondered if Scobie would ever get some justice from this system. October 30th, to quell the unrest, Hotham finally established a board of inquiry into Scobie's murder, the actions of camp officials, and the reported corruption. And so, with the pressure now receding, 40 of the police reinforcements were returned to Melbourne. So the Ballarat goldfield bubbled along in this uneasy manner for several weeks, but it was clear to both the diggers and the authorities that, and I'm fishing around here for a helpful cliché, the lid had come off, the line had been crossed, the toothpaste was out of the tube, I don't know. Things were most definitely tense, and many were wondering if there had to be a change in tactics, if they were to get any real action out of their government. The previous year, in June of 1853, the miners on the Bendigo fields, in an attempt to force the government to rethink the licensing arrangements, had formed the Anti-Gold Licence Association and staged protests that became known as Red Rebellions because the diggers wore red ribbons around their hats to show their solidarity. Quote, Little was done to make safe or even slightly comfortable access to the diggings. Police oppressed rather than protected. Diggers were unable to purchase land and invest in their future in the colony. The government and the squatters held control of the land and did their best to keep the workers without opportunity. However, the diggers began to sense a power of their own, the power of common rights, of unity, of equality, of suffrage, and they soon demanded these rights, unquote. Claiming to represent 23,000 diggers across Bendigo, the Anti-Gold Licence Association collected more than 5,000 signatures to present to La Trobe, and mid-August they rallied at View Point, close to the police camp in Bendigo. Marching there with a fife and tambourines, and carrying flags from many nations, they arrived at the chosen point, and gave pride of place to their new flag, the diggers' flag that they had created for the association. Hocking quoted an Argus article report of a Mr. Potts addressing that crowd, saying, quote, I see before me some 10,000 or 12,000 men which any country in the world might be proud to own as her sons, the very cream of Victoria and the sinews of her strength. Let it be seen this day whether you intend to be slaves or Britons, whether you will basely bow down your neck to the yoke or whether, like true men, you will support your rights." <laughs> well, he was certainly revving them up with a speech like that. 
The Anti-Gold Licence Association flag no longer survives, but it was reported to consist of a red background divided into four quarters. Each quarter contained a symbol relevant to their causes. A crossed pick and shovel in front of a panning cradle, the scales representing justice, a Roman bundle of sticks representing union, a single stick alone will break, but bundled together they are strengthened, and the emu and kangaroo representing Australia. I'll put a reproduction image on the webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Their petition document survives, but as we know from the continuing agitation across the goldfields, their requests were again disregarded. They had asked, quote, first, to direct that the licence fee be reduced to 10 shillings a month, Secondly, to direct that monthly or quarterly licence be issued at the option of the applicants. Thirdly, to direct that the new arrivals to be allowed on registering their names at the Commissioner's Office 15 clear days residence on the goldfields before the licence be enforced. Fourthly, to afford greater facility to diggers and other residents on the goldfields who wish to engage in agricultural pursuits for investing their earnings in small allotments of land. Fifthly, to direct that the penalty of £5 for non-possession of a licence be reduced to £1. Sixthly, to direct that, as the diggers and other residents on the goldfields of the colony have uniformly developed a love of law and order, the sending of an armed force to enforce the licence tax be discontinued. Unquote. It's a similar set of requests that miners had been pushing for since the beginning of the rush, with the addition perhaps of the request for access to land to purchase and the discontinuation of the despotic military police actions, acting where a civil and civilian police force should have been. The Bendigo Red Rebellion, threats of licence boycott and burning, the petition and the flag raising would all be replicated again in a manner at Ballarat the following year, only this time it would tip over into a physical confrontation. Back to 1854 though, on November 1st, a meeting at Ballarat proposed a Bendigo plan to clarify and push their demands, though there were some by now who advocated moving to physical force. No doubt the spies in the crowd would have reported that back to their minders and made the police camp nervous. November 10th, the riot inquiry concluded its sessions and heard that John Humphrey, Frederick Verne, Captain Ross and Samuel Irwin, representing the Ballarat Reform League, laid the blame for the Eureka Hotel riot kicking off with the officers of the camp. The inquiry then, predictably, expressed overall satisfaction with the current arrangements, but did recommend the dismissal of magistrate dues and a police sergeant major. This meagre response could not placate the diggers. November 11th, about 10,000 men turned up at a meeting on Bakery Hill to ratify the establishment of the newly operating Ballarat Reform League, intended to represent the interests of the Ballarat miners and their families they hoped to organise the defence of the prisoners charged with the burning of Bentley's Eureka Hotel and to discuss and formulate a charter. Outlining their political agenda, they stated, quote, If Queen Victoria continues to act upon the ill advice of dishonest ministers and insists upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony, the Reform League will endeavour to supersede such a royal prerogative by asserting that of the people which is the most royal of all prerogatives, as the people are the only legitimate source of all political power. Hmm. 
possibly a little inflammatory. (laughs) Anyway, they recorded the following reforms to be considered. Full and fair representation. Manhood suffrage. No property qualification for members of the Legislative Council. A wage for parliamentary members to allow poor men to run. Short duration of Parliament. A total abolition of the diggers and the storekeepers' licence tax. And they requested an immediate change to the management of the goldfields by disbanding the commissioners and camps. And among other resolutions was, quote, that this meeting condemns the insolent language used by the Colonial Secretary, the Surveyor-General, the Chief Commissioner of the Goldfields, and the Chairman of Committees, for their unwarrantable assertions respecting the veracity of the diggers and the respectability of the representatives of the public press on the goldfields, and their sneering contempt at an appeal for an investigation into the malpractices of the corrupt camp at Ballarat, unquote. Okay, so now we're down to it. Basically, they were getting organised and they weren't going to put up with all this corrupt and disrespectful crap anymore. They would be ignored no more. They would take the fight to the government if that's what had to happen. November 16th, the Board of Inquiry had exposed some of the corruption at Ballarat, but, disappointingly, barely criticised the existing licensing regime. Hotham did, however, announce his intention to set up a royal commission to inquire into the administration of the goldfields. So that was at last a positive move, but almost too little too late by now, though. November 18th, Bentley, Farrell and another man were finally convicted of the manslaughter of Scobie, and Mrs Bentley was acquitted. So again, there was some positive outcomes finally coming from the judiciary and the authorities at last. But any positive feeling did not last long. Two days later, on the 20th, the three diggers arrested were convicted of burning down the Eureka Hotel and sentenced to jail. Three men identified out of the more than 5,000-strong mob. Five days later, Commissioner Reed received a threat that if the three men were not released, the camp would be attacked and the officials driven from Ballarat. Just how many people were behind that message is unknown, but it certainly indicated the aggravation and hostility the miners were still feeling towards the authorities. On the 27th, a deputation from the Ballarat Reform League, led by Humphrey, Black and Kennedy, met with Governor Hotham, his Attorney-General and Colonial Secretary in Melbourne to demand the release of those jailed men. (laughs) Unfortunately, the term demand outraged Hotham, stalling any further negotiations, and so no progress was made, despite Humphrey backing down and rephrasing their requests. At Ballarat, in an effort to head off any bloodshed, Father Smythe had advised Commissioner Reid that there was now the possibility that the Ballarat camp was in danger of attack, and the anxiety levels of both the diggers and the authorities rose further. The 12th Regiment, military reinforcements making their way through the Eureka lead to the camp, were attacked and shot at, three persons being injured, and now there was serious confrontation occurring. On November 29th, What we now know of as the Eureka flag, the Southern Cross, was raised over the Ballarat Reform League meeting on Bakery Hill for the first time. With more than 10,000 in attendance, this was to be a pivotal turning point in the protests. Chaired by Hayes, Humphrey and others continued to press for a peaceful resistance. But there was a groundswell turning to the idea that physical force was all that was left to them. 
Disappointed by the lack of progress at the meeting in Melbourne, many had reached the limit of their patience, and they were ready to take up arms and insist on their rights by force instead. They spoke first of no longer showing their licences on request and would go peacefully to the cab to be arrested. If everyone did so, the authorities would be overwhelmed by the sheer volume and would have to yield. Then Vern proposed a motion that diggers should reject the system altogether and burn their licences. Should any digger be arrested then, the rest of them should unite and defend and protect them. Then Laylor publicly spoke for the first time to support the men in defying the authorities. They agreed to meet again the following day to formally elect a committee of action. That day, the 30th, Reed, in the camp, decided a show of strength was needed. Knowing what was discussed at the monster meeting on Bakery Hill, he determined to call their bluff. As the troopers moved into the diggings, hundreds of defiant diggers hurled abuse and pelted the troopers with stones. Fights broke out and shots were fired, luckily over their heads. As the digger numbers increased, Reed read the Riot Act, no doubt so that he would be covered in acting in any manner he chose, quote, regardless of the consequences, unquote, as Hotham had advised. But they did leave without any bloodshed, taking a number of men into custody and back to the camp. The diggers then began gathering again at Bakery Hill, and this time Peter Laylor stepped up to lead the agitated crowd. With a pistol in hand, he jumped up on the tree stump and he addressed the men inviting them to band together and swear allegiance to the Southern Cross. He is recorded as saying, quote, I looked around me, saw brave and honest men who had come thousands of miles to labour for independence. I knew that hundreds were in great poverty, who would possess the wealth and happiness if allowed to cultivate the wilderness that surrounded us. The grievance under which we had long suffered and the brutal attack of that day flashed across my mind, and with the burning feelings of an injured man, I mounted the stump and proclaimed, Liberty! I called for volunteers to come forward and enroll themselves in fighting companies. Hundreds responded to the call. I then called on the volunteers to kneel down. They did so, and with their heads uncovered and their hands raised to heaven, they solemnly swore at all hazards, to defend their rights and liberties." Unquote. Carboni, who had only become a signed-up member of the Ballarat Reform League the day prior, and fortunately being a speaker of several languages, was charged as the delegate of the more than 1,000 foreigners involved. And various other men stepped forward to take leadership roles allocated to them, planning for ammunition stores, food and supplies. Carboni, Black and Father Smythe then left to demand the release of the men arrested earlier, and the diggers then marched under the flag with Laylor and Captain Ross down to the Eureka diggings, where they began to construct a defensive stockade. The Ballarat Reform League charter still exists, as does some parts of the flag, and I will provide some images on my website. Not all the sources I have looked at use all the same names but the Ballarat Reform League, Inc.'s webpage states that, quote, The architects of the Ballarat Reform League were British Chartists George Black, Henry Holyoke, Henry Nichols, Thomas Kennedy, J.B. Humphrey, Peter Laylor, Timothy Hayes and Frederick Verne. Peter Laylor at least is probably a familiar name to most of you who already know this story. As I said earlier, they were now very serious in their demand for their just rights, they would be ignored no longer. They would take the fight to the government if that's what had to happen. 
The respectful, peaceful ways had produced no result, and now many were prepared to literally fight for their rights. So, we must leave the story here again for today, just as the diggers begin building their stockade. Next time, we'll get a bit more background on some of the leaders at the stockade. The name Peter Laylor, as I said, will be familiar to many, and we do need to talk about him. But there were other interesting characters involved that deserve a bit of airtime too. We'll discuss what the stockade was, and how they planned to defend it, as well as the responses from the authorities. And we need to talk about that fabulous flag. And finally, we need to recount what actually happened on the 3rd of December, 1854. So please join me again for that. Before I sign off, I'd like to recommend a really fascinating podcast this month. For those who enjoy the sciences, exploring and history, Time to Eat the Dogs podcast is an absolute gem. Professor Michael Robinson from the University of Hartford broadens our conversations about science, history and exploration by talking with authors, scientists and other experts on a wide range of very interesting topics. The only problem is you come away from each episode with a new title that you really want to read. Oh, for a time machine. I will provide a link to his webpage in my reference list. Have a look at his page. I'm sure you'll find a topic in the collection that will be of interest to you. By the way, I'd be very interested to know if you are finding these recommendations helpful at all. Drop me a line and let me know. The contact details are available on my webpage. There's also a Twitter address or a Facebook link if that's of use. Also, as usual, the reference list for this episode and links and images that I may have mentioned in the show are on my webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Thank you for joining me again this month. I hope that the two close episodes were of interest. With luck, I'll have the next one ready for the last Friday next month. We're reaching the pointy end of the uprising at the Eureka Stockade, so that's fantastic. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll talk to you then. Cheers. Cheers.